Well, if you have your Bibles again, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And you'll want to find Matthew chapter 19 and 20. We'll be reading the last verse of chapter 19 and the first 16 verses of chapter 20. If you're a guest with us, we've been working verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, the last and the first, Matthew chapter 19. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1048. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 30, and this is what the Word of God says. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. All of us at one time or another have questioned the sovereignty, the justice, the goodness, and the graciousness of God. These doubts enter our mind when a colleague, a colleague is promoted ahead of us, when we are plagued with health issues while everyone else around us seems healthy and strong, when we are not able to have children while we're surrounded with families and the news of pregnancies, when it seems everyone is getting married and we feel as if we will never find the one, when we suffer tremendous loss while others seem to be exceptionally blessed, and when the calamities of life take center stage on the news. At one point or another, all of us have questioned 
the sovereignty, the justice, the goodness, and the graciousness of God. That's why one commentator wrote, When men doubt the justice and fairness of God, it is always because of their own perverted views of justice and of Him. God Himself is the standard for righteousness, and it is as impossible for Him to be unjust as it is for Him to lie. End quote. John Oxenham wrote a short poem entitled God's Handwriting. And in this poem, he describes the perspective we need when we are tempted to grumble and question God's sovereignty, God's justice, God's goodness, and His grace. And this is what he wrote. He writes in characters too grand for our short sight to understand. We catch but broken strokes and try to fathom all the mystery of withered hopes, of death, of life, the endless war, the useless strife. But there, with larger, clearer sight, we shall see this. His way is right. In this passage, Jesus continues to address his disciples. The word for, the very first word in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1, connects Jesus' words in this passage that we've just read all the way back into chapter 19 and verses 16 to 30. And in this passage, Jesus teaches us about the labors in the vineyard. It's only recorded here in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And in this parable, Jesus illustrates for us what it means for the first to be last and for the last to be first. And as a result, he corrects our thinking about the sovereignty, the justice, the goodness, and the graciousness of God. So would you note with me, first of all, the action in the parable, beginning in chapter 19 and verse 30. And Matthew says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. In Matthew 19 and verse 30, Jesus concludes his explanation of his encounter with the rich young ruler by announcing a shocking principle regarding the kingdom of heaven, stating, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And as we've noted previously, the rich young ruler left his encounter with Jesus full of himself and full of his possessions, but empty of God and empty of anything that really mattered in life. And according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 30, there will be many like the rich young ruler who will experience the reversal that he is announcing in this passage of Scripture. 
And in just a few short chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he will illustrate this principle here in Matthew 19.30 once more. And in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32, this is what Jesus will say. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And listen to Jesus' response. He said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And after making this statement in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1, Jesus explains this principle of the kingdom by painting a picture of the kingdom of heaven to his disciples through a parable. And according to Jesus, in verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And what Jesus describes in this verse would have been a very familiar scene in the first century. From this text, we learn that the estate of the master of the house included a large vineyard for which he needed to hire laborers. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether uh, he was preparing a new vineyard or whether he was pruning the vines of an existing vineyard or whether he was getting ready for the harvest. But what we do know is that all of those tasks required a large labor force. And because most owners did not have enough household servants or regular workers, temporary day laborers were hired from nearby towns and villages. And these laborers were usually unskilled at a trade and were near the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, many of them just above that of a beggar. And these laborers worked from job to job, many of which lasted no more than a day. And so they only had the guarantee of work and livelihood one day at a time. And so every day, these laborers would gather into the town center marketplace early before dawn, hoping that someone would hire them and they would have enough resources to support their family. And Jesus says, this is where the master of the house went early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, because these laborers were unskilled and they were desperate for work, they were vulnerable. They were often taken advantage of and they were underpaid. And so because God is a God of mercy and love and compassion, he established guidelines for his people in how to treat these workers. And in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 13, God commands this, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, if you hired a day laborer, 
you were to pay them a decent wage, and you were to pay them at the end of every day so that they would have resources to feed their family. Moses explained this command from God in more detail in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 15, stating, You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And so this is the scene in verse 1 that Jesus establishes in this parable. Now in verse 2, Jesus says that after the master of the house found the workers in the marketplace, he agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, and he sent them into his vineyard. A denarius was a Roman coin, and it was usual, the usual daily wage for manual labor. And so this was actually very generous for these type of workers because they were often taken advantage of. And you'll notice in verse number 3, and you should keep your Bible open and follow along because I'm going to be moving right through these verses now. In verse 3, the parable takes an unusual turn, and you've got to notice it or you'll not keep up with what's happening in the text. After he hired the first group of workers early in the morning... Jesus says in verse 3, the master of the house went back into the marketplace about the third hour and he saw others standing idle. Now the workday in that culture was from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. And it was divided into four three-hour increments. And so the third hour would have been approximately at 9 in the morning. And so the master of the house went back three hours later at nine in the morning, and he saw other workers standing idle. Now, it doesn't signify that these workers were lazy. It points to the fact that no one had hired them to do any work. You'll also notice in the parable that the parable does not suggest that the master of the house sized up the amount of work in his vineyard and he determined that the original slate of workers wasn't enough and he went out to recruit more. No, the parable actually implies the opposite, that the motivation behind calling the second wave of workers seems to be out of compassion and love from the master of the house to the workers who were standing idle and needed money to support their families. Moreover, in verse number 4, you'll notice that the master did not offer these laborers a specific wage. He simply said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give it to you. And that phrase, whatever is right, would be assumed to be a fraction of a denarius equivalent to the amount of hours that they worked in the day because these laborers were already three hours behind the clock. And you'll notice in the text that the workers agreed not even knowing exactly what they would be paid because as in most rural communities, everyone knew everyone else and these workers knew this master and they trusted him. Now, the parable continues to grow stranger in verses 5 through 7. The master kept going out throughout the rest of the day to hire more unemployed workers. In verse 5, Jesus says the master returned to the marketplace at about the sixth hour and the ninth hour 
12 o'clock noon and 3 p.m. in the afternoon, respectively. And he hired more workers under the same conditions as the second group. Whatever is right, I will pay you. Then notice in verse 6, the master returned to the marketplace around the 11th hour, which would be 5 o'clock in the evening. And he was shocked to find that there were other workers still standing idle. And so he asked them, why do you stand idle all day? And in verse 7, the laborers responded by stating the obvious. We're idle because nobody has hired us. And so notice carefully, at the last hour of the workday, the master of the house sent them into the vineyard with the others. Isn't that strange? Why? Why would he hire this last group? And the answer is right in the text, friends, because they were standing idle all day and nobody else had hired them and they would have not been able to support themselves or their families. And you'll notice in the text that no explanation is given as to why these men had been standing idle all day. Many believe that they were uh, older that they lacked the strength of the workers that had already been hired, that they were possibly the least productive workers that nobody else wanted. But really, why they were still idle doesn't matter. What matters is at the very last hour, the master of the house rescued them from their idleness and sent them into the vineyard. Now we see the action in the parable. Notice with me secondly, the accusation in the parable in verses 8 to 12. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You'll notice in verses 8 to 12 that the parable takes on another surprising turn. At the end of the workday, the owner of the vineyard instructed his foreman in verse number 8 to call the laborers and to pay them their wages, beginning... Notice the text. This is the third time in the text that Jesus says this. Beginning with who? The last up to the first. And as we have already seen, there is nothing unusual about the first part of the owner's instruction. It was customary to pay the laborers at the end of each workday. So there's nothing strange about this. What is unusual is the comment at the end of verse 8. The order in which the workers were paid, as well as the amount that each worker received. Notice carefully in the text. In verse 9, Jesus says that those hired about the 11th hour, the very last hour of the day, the last group to be hired, each of them received a denarius. They worked for one hour and they received a full day's pay. Wouldn't you like to have a job like that? And at this point, 
Notice the text. None of the other workers had a problem with what was taking place. In fact, if we were there, they were probably murmuring and rumbling all around in excitement because they were doing the math. They had their iPhones out running the calculator app. And they were saying to themselves, these guys worked one hour, got a whole day's pay. I've worked six hours. I'm going to get a lot more money. I worked nine hours. I worked a full day. I'm going to get 12 days worth of wages. So they were excited. No complaining on their part. But the text implies that those who had worked as well as uh, for three hours, as well as those who had worked for six hours, also received a denarius. You mean I worked six hours and I got the same as the one-hour worker? I worked nine hours and I got the same as the one-hour worker? And notice in verse 10, Jesus says that when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. They thought they would receive 12 days worth of pay, but each of them also received a denarius. Now, I want you to notice something that's missing in the text. We're going to see in a moment lots of words from the workers who were hired first. But did you notice that the text doesn't mention one word from the workers who were hired last? You know why? You know why I think that is? They were probably in awe over the generosity and grace that the master of the house gave them. But in verses 11 and 12, Upon receiving their pay, the first group of workers grumbled, the Bible says, at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And you'll notice, they didn't address their complaint to their co-workers. They didn't address their complaint to the foreman who gave them their pay. They addressed their complaint to the master of the house. And their words in verse 12 suggest resentment and anger and a feeling that they had been treated unfairly by the master of the house. In their minds, they thought that they carried the burden of the day. They worked the longest. And they not only worked the longest, they worked when the sun was the hottest. And for them to receive the same amount of pay as one who worked at the end of the day for an hour was insulting. They felt they deserved more. And these workers were blinded by their selfishness. And they were uh, ungrateful. They didn't even thank the master for what they did receive. All they could see was through jealous eyes, and they couldn't stand seeing someone else hired later than them get paid the same amount that they did. And instead of rejoicing at the good fortune of the other workers, they grumbled and complained. Notice not only the action in the parable and the accusation in the parable, in verses 13 to 16, we see the argument in the parable. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first will be last? In verse 13, the master of the house responds to just one of the first hired workers, letting him know that all of them were out of line. And he said to him, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? And it's interesting. Matthew uses the word friend from Jesus' lips three times in his gospel. And did you know that all three times Jesus uses the word friend? He uses it to speak to someone and correct them when they're wrong. And so he's using it the same way in this passage. And the master of the house, in responding to the accusation of injustice, he reminds the worker that he did nothing wrong because he, along with the rest of the first group of hired workers, made an agreement with him for a day's work for a denarius. It's as if the master was saying this to the worker. You worked the 12 hours you agreed to work, and I paid you the denarius that I agreed to pay you. We both lived up to the end of our agreement, and therefore you have no complaint. Leave. Then in verse 14, he tells the worker, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Take what is yours and be on your way. It is of no concern to you. Listen, it is of no concern to you how I treat the others. This is my money. This is my vineyard. Who do you think you are telling me what to do? And finally, in verse 15, the master asks him rhetorically, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, here's what I want you to see. In the master's response, friends, he makes four claims in the text about himself through his response to the accusation. And these are important, and I'm going to come back and revisit them in a minute. Here's the first thing. He claims his sovereignty. The master of the house did not answer to any of the workers. He had a right to do with his resources as he wished, and no one had the right to object to what he did. He was sovereign over all of it. Number two, he was just. The master of the house was completely just. Where he made an agreement, he kept it. And where there was no agreement, he paid an amount that was more than reasonable and fair to the workers. Number three, he emphasized his goodness. And the goodness of the master of the house determined his choice. And it finds its expression in his generosity. Remember, this master didn't have to hire any of the workers. He hired them all out of the goodness and compassion of his heart. And number four, he emphasized his grace. The master of the house knew that those who worked less than a full day would not have enough money to care for themselves or to care for their family. And so he decided to treat them with grace and generosity by giving them not what they deserved, listen, not what they deserved, but what they needed. That's what he gave them. 
And you'll notice in verse 15 that the final question of the master of the house powerfully summarizes the state of discontent in these workers. Do you begrudge my generosity? Now, I'm going to explain to you what he's saying with that question. And I think if you get the image in your mind, you'll never forget it. The word begrudge can literally be translated this way. Is your eye evil? Is your eye evil? It, it emphasizes a jealous, envious spirit. A spirit that resents what somebody else has. A spirit that wants what somebody else has. Now, now here it is. Don't miss the context. This master was looking at this worker who was representing the group who was grumbling and complaining about them, him. And he looked him in the eye and he said, are you giving me the evil eye? They were giving the evil eye to the master. And you know what that is, don't you? When you were a kid, you did it to your parents once. And your kids do it to you once, hopefully. They were giving him the evil eye. And notice how Jesus ends the parable in verse 16. The same way he began it. So the last will be first, and the first last. So we've seen the action in the parable, we've seen the accusation in the parable, and we've seen the argument in the parable. Finally, would you notice with me the application of the parable? So what's the point? Generally speaking, most parables, because they are a different genre of Scripture, have one main point to them. Now, would you remember what Jesus said in verse 1 at the outset of the parable? Do you see it there in your Bible? You still got your Bible open? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this parable. So Jesus, through this parable, is teaching us something about his kingdom. And the question becomes, what is he teaching us about his kingdom? Well, to understand what he's teaching us and to get to the spiritual meaning, it's necessary to understand who and what is represented in it. So note with me carefully. The vineyard is the kingdom of heaven. The master of the house is God the Father. The foreman who distributes the pay is the Lord Jesus Christ. The laborers are Christians. The denarius is eternal life. The workday is the lifetime of a believer. And evening is eternity. Now, that's how we define it. How do we apply it? Well, like a good modern Puritan, if you've read any of the Puritans, you know that they have lengthy applications. So, as a good modern Puritan, I have nine applications. Number one, there have been many suggestions as to the point of this parable. The most common one suggests that this parable is about 
personal rewards that will determine the nature and the scope of a believer's reign and service in eternity. But would you listen to me carefully, friends? This parable is not about rewards. And this parable is not about grapes. This parable is about grace. The point of the parable is the grace of God. And Jesus is teaching us what he's been teaching us through the encounter of the rich young ruler. That God's kingdom is not based on our merit. God's kingdom is not based on our works. God's kingdom is not based on our wages. The laborers in the vineyard came at different times. They worked different hours. And they had different levels of productivity. But notice with me, all of them received the same pay. Because God's gift of salvation is not based on your or my merit. It is not based on your accomplishments or my accomplishments that wane from day to day. God's salvation is based on His grace, which is exactly the same every single day. And so the point of the parable is the grace of God. We're applying an understanding of the grace of God to our lives through this parable. Application number two. God is sovereign in his grace. And in his sovereign grace, he initiates and he accomplishes salvation. All you have to do is read through the parable again and notice where all of the activity lies. All of it in the parable lies on the master of the house, God the Father. And in the parable, the master of the house went out looking for workers. And it was he who asked them to come and labor in his vineyard. And because God does the seeking and the saving in his own initiative and power, no one can make demands upon his grace. No one can make demands upon his grace. As Paul argues in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 to 16, God has the right to dispense his mercy as he pleases, on whom he pleases, when he pleases, and how he pleases, and he does not need your permission to do that. He is sovereign over it, not you. And the Bible teaches clearly that every single person who ever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has first been sought by God the Father in His sovereign grace and then has been given to God the Son in His sovereign grace. And in His sovereign grace, God the Holy Spirit will birth him or her into the kingdom. And whether this happens early in life or late in life, Every single person who experiences the sovereign grace of God can do nothing but worship God and give Him honor and glory and praise for their salvation because it is all of God and not of man. He is sovereign in His grace. Friends, this parable is teaching you to have a higher view of God. To look higher in your thoughts at God. To see His glory, His grandeur, and His grace. And then to bow in humility before this sovereign. Application number three. 
God is not only sovereign in his grace. Listen carefully. This may rub some of you the wrong way. God is surprising in the operation of his grace. And his surprising grace is seen in the overwhelming mercy, goodness, and generosity of the master of the house. Just as the first hired workers were surprised by the master's treatment of the last hired workers. You remember that in the parable, don't you? They were surprised how the master treated the last workers. We will be surprised by whom we meet in heaven. Many whom we expect to be numbered under the first of God's people, Jesus says, will be the last. And likewise, many whom we would expect to be numbered under the last of God's people, Jesus says, will be first. And some whom we thought would never make it to heaven, we'll see them there. And some whom we thought would make it to heaven, we won't see there. They'll be out. You say, how can you say that? Well, Jesus said it. He said it in Matthew chapter 7, seven at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that on the last day when people stand before him for judgment, they will be shocked that they're not in heaven. And they will cry out to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we do not do mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Oh, yes, dear friends, it is a biblical truth and fact that on the last day, people will be shocked where they are in eternity. They'll be shocked because God's grace is surprising. And I want you to remember this this morning, that both heaven and hell will be full of surprises. It'll be full of surprises. The last will be first and the first will be last because of the surprising grace of God. Do you understand what that means? The thief on the cross will enjoy the full blessings of heaven alongside those who have labored their whole lives for Christ. He labored for Christ for moments. And he will experience and is experiencing the same grace of people who will labor their whole lives for Jesus. That's why his grace is surprising. Jesus said it, you heard him say it at the beginning of the sermon, that believing tax collectors, believing prostitutes, believing criminals, believing social outcasts will have the same heavenly residence as the Apostle Paul, as Augustine, as Charles Spurgeon, and as Billy Graham. They will have experienced the radical, saving, surprising grace of God. And they will enjoy heaven as much as all of those other names that I've mentioned to you. And the Bible teaches that every believer will have room in the Father's house. Every believer will be a part of the bride of Christ. Every believer will be a fellow heir of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every believer is and will be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that is for one reason and one reason only, the surprising grace of God. And friends, that's just what God's grace does. It surprises you. You come into a place like this thinking you're going to mind your own business. And the wind of the Holy Spirit blows through this place. It surprises you with the grace of God and it shows you your sin and it shows you your need for Christ. It shows you how dead you are in your life and how much you need life in Jesus Christ. 
It shows you your sins and your faults and your mistakes and your transgressions. It shows you how your only hope in life and death is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you come in not expecting it and God's grace surprises you. And that's what God's grace does. It surprises you. Maybe it surprised you this morning. Maybe you see yourself in this parable. You see yourself in the 11th hour worker at the last moment needing grace. Oh, friends, it's a warning to Christians. Who do you think you are to say who is going to be in heaven and who isn't? That's not your decision to make. That's God's grace. Application number four. The grumbling of the first group of hired workers reminds us of the attitude and actions of the Israelites' grumblings in the wilderness. And here's what the parable is telling us. It's telling us not to be like the Exodus generation. They were saved from slavery. They were saved from the rule of Pharaoh. They were saved from the Red Sea only to die without inheriting the promised land. And they died because they never got past their grumbling. They were never grateful for what God did for them. They always complained. And if you look at all of the references to grumbling in the Bible, here's what you're going to find. That to God, grumbling is as deadly as the sin of adultery and the sin of murder. That's why Paul tells Christians in Philippians 2.14, don't grumble. That's why Peter tells Christians in 1 Peter 4.9, don't grumble. It's why James tells Christians in James 5, 9, don't grumble. And it's why Jesus says in this parable, in his own way, don't grumble against God. And so this parable shows you yourself in the mirror, and you have to ask yourself a question. Am I a grumbler? Am I jealous over my perceived injustices? having my eyes fixed on what God has done and is doing for others in comparison to what he is doing for me. Am I a grumbler? You know what it's like to be around a grumbler, don't you? Oh, come on. Don't look at me like that. You know who they are. You've been able to identify them, and you see them coming your way, and you try to look busy. You try to jump into any conversation, every conversation. You'll talk to the wall if you can get away from the grumbler, right? Is that really the kind of testimony you want to live as somebody who's experienced the grace of God? A grumbler? Application number five. We may identify more with the first hired workers than we realize. Remember what they were guilty of. Not just grumbling. They were guilty of giving the evil eye to the master. And isn't it true? Isn't it true that some of us have been guilty of giving the evil eye to God? Isn't it true that some of us have seen God as not being generous, as not being good, as not being just, as not being sovereign? Here's what I know. A lack of compassion, 
being consumed with ourselves and a misunderstanding of grace lead us to see God's goodness as evil, his compassion as cruel, and his generosity as injustice. And this parable reveals a cold, selfish, loveless, merciless, jealous heart within all of us, causing us to think that we deserve better than what God has given us. So are you among those who are giving the evil eye to God because of your accusations of injustice towards him? Do you find yourself being critical of him in the operation of his mercy and his grace and his generosity and his goodness on behalf of others? Do you find yourself giving him the evil eye because somebody has hurt you and here you are in all of this pain and hurt and confusion and it just seems that they have no conviction over what they've done, that they're getting away with it and that God seems to even be blessing them and there you are in your circumstances getting bitter and frustrated, giving God the evil eye. Oh friends, wouldn't you remember that this isn't final judgment? Your perception's wrong. You can't trust what you're saying to yourself because you're not speaking the truth. And listen to what you're saying about God. He's gracious. He's good. He's just. He's sovereign. He's generous. And anything short of hell in your life, grace. Application number six. This parable in part was a response to Peter's question of Jesus in Matthew 27. When he said, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Peter's attitude was like the attitude of the first hired workers. And it urges us to examine our motives in serving God. Do we serve God as Christians for what we can get from Him and get out of it? Or do we serve God because we love Him? Do we serve Him because we've experienced His grace? Do we serve Him because we want to serve Him for everything He's done for us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And would you notice in the parable that every single laborer worked? Every single person who experienced the grace of God Worked? Do you? Do you serve him? Do you worship him? Do you surrender to him? Not for what you can get out of it, but because you love him? Or are you like the first hired workers in it for yourselves? Application number seven. This will be a limited application, but I think it will help all of us. For those in full-time ministry and for those who are active in serving God in the church, this parable serves as a reminder that laboring in Christ's vineyard, listen, laboring in Christ's vineyard is not a drudgery. It is a privilege. It is not something that deserves proportionate compensation. And if we're not careful, we can easily have the same sense of injustice as the first hired workers. So in your ministry struggles, when you see false teachers and false prophets prospering, 
When you see unfaithful pastors and unfaithful churches prospering, remember God was gracious to remove you from the idleness of your sin and your shame and even place you in his vineyard. And everything after that is grace. And he didn't just place you in his vineyard. He equipped you and he called you to serve him. Is there really injustice on his part? Or is this not final judgment yet? He's gracious and kind. Listen, and every single person in this room can trust his justice. No matter what you see in the news, no matter what you experience in life, he is a just and true and loving God. And he will make everything right in the end. And you can take that to the bank as sure as I'm standing on this platform this morning. Application number eight. The last group of workers were hired at the 11th hour because nobody wanted them. No one saw anything good in them. No one saw worth in hiring them or investing in them. They were the despised, the unskilled, the oldest, the weakless, likely the least productive, and the most ignored. But would you notice the parable? The master of the house saw value and worth in the least and in the last, and he lavished his grace upon them. And it is a reminder, friends, that God values what the world says is worthless and useless. And he values it so much to confound the wise. And you may feel today as if you're useless, as if you're worthless, as if you're among the least and the weakest, the oldest, the cast-offs, the ones that nobody ever notices. Could I remind you today that the God of all grace, who's sovereign in His grace, who is surprising in His grace, notices you, and He sees value and worth in you, and you matter to Him. Final application. I'm addressing now anyone who is an unbeliever in this room. Anyone who does not call themselves a Christian. And here's what I mean by what it means to be a Christian. We need to have the same definition so I make sure we're communicating together. To be a Christian means that you recognize that you were born in sin. And that your sin has separated you from God. You've not only disobeyed God in the things you've done. You've disobeyed God in the things that you've failed to do. All of that is sin. And sin separates you from God. And when you couldn't get to God because of your sin, God came to you through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born sinless and lived a sinless life and died a death that He did not deserve in your place for your sins so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God through His death and His burial and His resurrection. And He was put in a tomb and He rose from the grave and He ascended to heaven and He's seated at the right hand of the Father and one day He's going to split the eastern sky and come back. And because he did all of that and is going to do all of that, he has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And so you recognize the truth about yourself that you're a sinner and you recognize the truth about Christ and who he is and what he did for you. And the Bible says to be a Christian, you confess your sin to God that you are a sinner and you exercise belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and you turn from your sins and you live for Christ. That's a Christian. 
and your life evidences your faith. There's fruit in your life. There's good works. You love the things that God loves. This is what it means to be a Christian. Not a member of a church. Not walking an aisle. Not raising a hand. Not saying a prayer. Not just simply saying, I believe. Even the demons believe. I've described for you what a Christian is. And so if you're not a Christian today, if you're not a believer, this final application is for you. Would you listen carefully to me? And with those in the room, pray for the unbelievers that are about to hear what I'm going to say. God continues to call people into his kingdom every single day, every single moment. And like the master of the house, God keeps going into the marketplaces of the world, calling people to himself. And the Bible says that God will continue to call people to himself until the end of the age. There will be people who will be called to God at the 11th hour before final judgment comes. So would you listen, if you're an unbeliever, not a Christian, to these words of J.C. Ryle? Let us beware of supposing from this parable that it is safe for anyone to put off repentance until the end of days. To suppose this is a most dangerous delusion. The longer men refuse to obey Christ's voice, the less likely they are to be saved. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Few are ever saved on their deathbeds. One thief on the cross was saved that none should despair, but only one that none should presume. A false confidence in those words, the eleventh hour has ruined thousands of souls. It's ruined thousands of souls. Thinking that you can put off the importance of eternity. Eternity is coming for you, friend. You have a date with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't turn from your sins and believe in Christ and ask Him to save you and reconcile you to God, you will not be ready for that day. You will not be ready for eternity. Don't think that you will live your whole life in rebellion to God, not caring a thing about God or the things of His kingdom. And at the last moments of breath in your life, you'll suddenly want to love Him. You're deceiving yourself. I would submit to you now that other than the surprising, shocking grace of God, if you won't love Him now when you're confronted with the gospel, you won't love Him then. You'll just be more hardened against it before you go into eternity. Today, if you hear His voice, is the day of salvation. Jesus taught this parable to show us that the last will be first and the first will be last. He taught this parable to show us the amazing grace of God. He taught this parable to correct our thinking about God's sovereignty, God's goodness, God's justice, God's generosity, and God's grace. Are you, are you like the 11th hour worker looking at the master in all of his grace.
Or have you forgotten just how amazing it really is? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for how it touches the very innermost parts of our lives. Would you take this word today and through your spirit, would you make application in our lives where we need it and where there is correction given and where there needs to be confession and repentance, give us grace to do that. No, God, we pray for those who don't know you today that they would see their need for Jesus and cry out to you in this very moment for salvation. Use your word to build your church and build your people for your kingdom and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond to what God has sent to us through his word by singing a final song. Let's stand together and sing to the Lord.